Welcome to the Outdoor Country Talk Podcast, hosted by Jacob Poole and Jeremy Shaw, where we bring country living and the great outdoors together. And everybody, welcome back to another episode of Outdoor Country Talk with your host, Jacob Poole, and myself, Jeremy Shaw. What's up, Poole? Uh, you know, you had told me the last couple of weeks that we were going to change the intro some. I wasn't expecting it to be quite like that. So, what, Well, you asked me the other day if I was going to be able to remember it, and I got close, I think. We, we can go with that, if that's what you want to go with there. <laughs> Man, we made it through the holidays, and uh, finally get some cold weather coming in. Seems like, hey, it threatening a little snow, so maybe uh, maybe things start picking up a little bit. Well, I know everybody in the room here with me is hoping that this weekend the deer move and that this cold snap actually helps them see some things that they haven't been seeing, but I don't know if that's going to be the case or not. So, I know yeah, this. I say how jealous I was that y'all are sitting in the studios, got three of you in there, and, and I'm the Lone Ranger not being able to be there as usual, but hey, well, well I think it's going to be a good show. Oh, no doubt. Today... Well, we actually have two guys in the studio with us today. One guy is a local guy, and the other guy has been up here numerous times over the years. You'd almost say you're kind of a a distant local, yeah, I guess if that works. I'm registered. I'm a registered local. <laughs> right. I, I've, been, I've been coming up here to Longleaf now. It's probably 45 years. I believe that would qualify you. Right. There's only really about two of us left that have you know, been that long. That's myself and Daryl Bateman lives on the the west side of Liberty mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Well, let me go ahead and introduce who we've got today. We've got a local realtor here, Brent McMillan, with us today, and we also have Mr. Stu Shear from down at Coquitry, Louisiana. And I, I think it's going to be a really good show. It'll be really interesting. I know Mr. Stu has had some great experiences over the years between fishing and hunting, at Miss, uh, playing football at Mississippi State and hunting up here. And you know, Brent's here with him today just – They've been friends for a while and, you know, just wanted to, to kind of be able to be in it and maybe bring something or remind on a story that may be forgotten. And I, I think it's going to be really yeah, good. I talked to uh, Brent and I talked before about getting Mr. Stu on. He said, you got to have me there. I know exactly what to pull out of him that he may be forgetting. <laughs> so Brent, you, you kind of know your role here with this. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> first thing, Jacob, it's real tour, not real turf. You got to get that right. It's my show. <laughs> I stand corrected. Uh, hey, Brent, you. Brent, you're not the only one. My, my wife is a, a, a realtor for Remax, and she reminds me of that all the time. She said, I'm not a real estate agent. I'm a realtor. That's it. There's so, a difference. Most people don't understand that. Right. But uh, thank you all for having me here today. Uh, Jacob and, and Jeremy and I both have talked a lot. Uh, really, I guess probably about the past two years uh, trying to get Mr. Stu up here. And uh, he's just a guy that I met years ago through uh, mutual friends at Longleaf and hunting and somebody I've just really grown fond of uh, and just an extremely interesting character with a, a great story. And and uh, I'm glad to have him here today and, and be a part of this. So thank you all for having me. Well, to back up there just a second, Jeremy, I like that you said that Brent knew exactly what he wanted to talk about because the whole time he's been here, he's asked me what we were talking about. So. <laughs> It sounds uh, he, like there's two he, different stories playing, going here. He's just playing that role and see, see kind of what we want out of him. But, yeah, Brent, Brent said he, he was going to bring some uh, some value to this. Well, you know, some of the stories that he that I would love to hear him tell uh, probably won't make the cut. So 
Uh, yeah, we, we do have to remember we're a kid-friendly, family-friendly uh, podcast. We have to keep things, you know, we get a lot of folks on here that get to telling something, and it's like, whoa, whoa. All right, first off, don't incriminate yourself. Second <laughs> off, you know, just just remember we, we try to keep it where little kids can listen to it too. Well, look, if they're all going to be as good as the one we heard right before we started recording, I think it's going to be a great one. That's no doubt. That's no doubt. So, I'll uh, kind of tell you a quick little story about Mr. Stu. And we've got a, a small group here in Liberty that are all uh, huge Mississippi State football fans. And uh, about two times a year, we uh, feed the football team. It's just a lot of fun. And so we're up there one day, and there's this older gentleman sitting at a table by himself. I've seen him there a couple of times, and nobody's ever talked to him. So I go over there and sit down and introduce myself, get to talking, and come to find out he has been the cook for the football team slash athletic department for, you know, 40 or 50 years. The guy's name is Jerry Devine. And so I start talking to him, and I said, man, I said, you've seen a lot of people come through here. Uh, a lot of them made it. A lot of them didn't make it. I said, who is your top three favorite guys that were just like the nicest guys or people you ever met? And so he names the first two, and I'd never heard of them. And the third one, he says, Stu Shear. I'm like, you know Stu? He's like, yeah, you know Stu? So that's kind of how it all came, came together, and I don't think they had seen or talked to one another in a number of years. So I picked the phone up, called Mr. Stu, got him on the phone together, almost never got my phone back. Uh, but I was glad to be a part of that and putting them back together. And I think he may have came down and went fishing with your son, with his family and all after that. He did, Brent. He came down a couple of years ago and, uh, we, uh, he brought his family and we talked about old times and, uh, he, he, he was great to me up there. I, uh, used to do a lot of hunting and fishing and I would, you know, keep his family supplied with squirrels and rabbits and deer and fish. <laughs> and he would help me out, you know, with food. Like times I'd be going fishing or hunting and, He'd always pack me a lunch, and uh, yeah, he was he was an awesome guy. Well, was a really nice guy. Enjoyed getting to meet him and know him, and and uh, so that's kind of how that came about. And, and Mr. Stu's just a great guy. And I'm I'm excited to have you here and hear you tell some stories today. Well, some of the stories we could probably tell. Some of them we'll probably have to put on the back burner, like you said. But, uh, <laughs> we the, and, we can do a. a a recorded podcast and we can do one without you know we can just sit around and tell junk later hopefully like you said the statute of limitations run out on some of the things we did <laughs> so, now mr Stu, when we were talking earlier you were at mississippi state from 64 to 69 correct and you played middle linebacker well i was actually in a in a, a scheme of things in those days i was probably would in today's scheme i would have been an outside backer but back then it was a defensive end really well now you're Play. a big man now hmm. You had to have been a big guy. I was back probably then. uh at the time I played, I think I played at about six two and two forty. I, I I was probably the second heaviest man on the team at that time in those days. You know, you hear a lot of old guys talking about, oh, back in my day. In my day the guys were small, weak, and slow. <laughs> but each generation, you know, is is far superior to the one before, so it's well, all relevant. Six two, two forty is a good size linebacker now. So I can't imagine back yeah. in 64, 69. Yeah. And if you say you were the second largest person on the team, that means you were bigger than a lineman. I was probably the biggest linebacker in the, in the conference at that time, you know, probably maybe the wow. slowest too, but the biggest and the slowest. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> now, who was coaching back at that time? Well, I was recruited, uh, by, um, oh, uh, Paul, um, 
Oh, see, Paul Davis. Yeah, Paul Davis back, you know, he was there in 60. I think he came in about 62 or three. I was recruited by Paul Davis group. And then um, my first year up there, we went four and six. And then we actually won our first four games and we lost the next six. And uh, uh, they got fired and they brought in a new uh, group, um, Charlie Shira. Okay. And brought in a whole new staff. But, um, you know, it was a big change at that time. And a lot of things happened. They changed the offense, all new, uh, you know, assistants and everything. So it, it was it was, a, it was a tough time at Mississippi State. I always called it, we were like an experiment station up there. <laughs> <laughs> Just throwing it against We had a lot of bodies. <laughs> we had a lot of bodies, but we didn't have a lot of football players, you know. Well, I think you said earlier y'all had like 170. Well, there, there was always about, at, at any one time back in those days, you had about 175 players, you know, football players, because I think they were allowed to recruit like 40 every year. So, you know, each year you had a holdover. So I think we had about like 175 of which maybe home games, I think only about 85 dressed out. Now, all that's changed now in the SEC, and I think we traveled with about 65. So that left that left 80, 90 guys that never suited out. I mean, never saw the field. And those guys, they would make them do odd jobs. You know, some of them were in the training room. Some of them were in the equipment room. They just odds and ends. Okay. But, so practice team – Something yeah, else. And in those days, you know, Mississippi State, well, all SEC schools, all the ball players lived in one one dorm. We had a, it was called Memorial Hall and it was just football players. We had our own cafeteria, our own facilities there. Now it's so much different. They live all over the place and they're on their own, but back then it was real uh, restricted. How serious of an environment was it at that dorm at that time? Uh it was pretty serious. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, mean, 170 ball players all housed in the same place. All I, in, well, I see a lot of junk going on. The oh, whole time. I'm telling you. I mean, I could tell you some stories that just would be crazy. I, I've got one here that I, I'd like to, you know, share with you. Go ahead. I think we can talk about this one. It was after football season. You had to, you had to picture the dorm. Now the dorm was Memorial Hall and it was three floors and they had a common shower in the middle of each floor. Okay. So. You know, in the mornings, the guys would go in there. You could shower maybe 10 or 12 guys at the same time, and there wasn't any windows in there, so it was all just light. And so in the early mornings, a lot of guys that had early classes would go in there, and they'd be in their shower, and probably there'd be six, eight, ten guys in there at any one time right at daybreak. Well, after football season, uh, I had about two or three buddies, and we used to go out at night and, and shine rabbits. Spotlight, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> so we'd hunt all night, you know, and we'd come back with 60, 70 rabbits. And every once in a while, we'd, we'd shoot a raccoon or maybe even a fox or, you know, something like that. And one, this one particular night, we, we had a few too many beers. So we decided that we had a, we had a red fox. We had a couple raccoons that were still alive. So we put them in a sack. And burlap sack, we kept them in the vehicle. And when we got back just before daylight, I took that burlap sack and I opened it up and I threw those two coons and, those, and that fox in the shower and then flipped the light out and I put a board across the door so they couldn't get out. And that, those coons and that fox were in there running around in there half crippled. And those guys were in there screaming bloody murder. You couldn't, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And they knew who it was. And I'm not going to use some of the language that they used. But they were 
cussing up a storm and threatening me and oh so it, it was it was it was something <laughs> so never listen, never a dull moment never a dull moment when 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 you live with 175 play uh meatheads i mean things are going to happen <laughs> i'm a bit to what was the retaliation on that there should have been something good coming back your way well uh, <laughs> they they were after me but they could never catch me <laughs> But they knew who it was. They were already screaming my name before, you know, they even knew what happened. But uh, so I can imagine what it was like in that shot. Clearly shoddy. not the first time you had pulled something. Oh, uh, no. Nope. No, there's been some others, but we can't talk about some of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Jacob, I, I've always been told that his, they, his nickname was the Wild Man of the Swamp. And I also heard he did a little cage fighting at one time younger <laughs> in his career. So they, they might not want to mess with him. Now, I think my, my uh, official uh, nickname in college was Wonder Animal. Wonder Animal. Yeah, Wonder Animal. I had a, I had a, if you can picture this, and I had a 1954 Buick Special, and we had, we ripped all the seats out. We had two rocking chairs in the front, and we had Coke boxes in the back, and we had the whole inside panel with deer skin. And we, I had a welder cut half of the top off, so you could, you could stand on the Coke boxes and, you shoot, shoot oh over the top, and, we, <laughs> and that's how we would drive around at night. And so, this was a legal vehicle on the highway. Well, I'm, I don't know how legal it was because <laughs> I didn't have a license plate. I had a Pepsi Cola plate that said "Pepsi beats the others cold." That's another little story. <laughs> so you now, now you wow. grew up in South Louisiana in Cocotry, right? Well, actually, I grew up in in a suburb of New Orleans, Metairie, but. Benny. But you traveled from there to Starkville, which I know back in that time things were different, law enforcement was different, but with a Pepsi Cola plate on your vehicle? I had a Pepsi Cola plate on my vehicle, and uh, some of the local state troopers up there at the time, I can't remember some of their name, but one time we were headed down the, into the crossroads, and he blue lighted us and pulled me over, and I got out, and he knew who I was, and he said, sure, he said, look. <laughs> He said, "You get you you got to get rid of that license plate, man." He said, "You you, you got to go get a real thing." <laughs> and I told him, "Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We we're gonna take care of that." But did, did he tell you it's better off not having one versus having a Pepsi one on there? <laughs> I tell you what. I mean, look, we we used to get away with some things in those days. It was a lot looser then than it is now, but it was just uh, it was a fun time up there. Well, in. Jeremy, he just said that like they got pulled over while they were riding back and forth to class. There's no telling what they right. were doing while they were riding around when he pulled them over. He may have got up there and there have been 70 animals in the vehicle with two rocking chairs and Coke crates with deer hides yeah. posted everywhere with a hood part cut out for the welding. Is there a picture of this vehicle anywhere? There's no picture. There needs There's to no be. There's no picture. In fact, when I, when I finished at Mississippi State, it was parked behind the – uh, Memorial Hall, and I left up there, and I don't know whatever became of it. I'm sure they. So you left the car there. I left it there. <laughs> <laughs> but left it sitting behind Memorial Hall. The last time it, I saw it, 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 it may still, still there. be there. That was 1969. So I'm gonna bet not. I mean, when I was at state, <laughs> I do not remember seeing anything that resembled that. Now, I'm sure by ninety something, it would have changed in those thirty years. But yeah, I would have remembered seeing a vehicle like that. That that would have been. They should have, you know, maybe kept it up and 
mounted it somewhere, put it in gl- behind glass. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's still there. I'm pr- I think I saw it. Okay, if anybody out there knows where this car is, get us a photo and send it to us. I want to see this thing. If anybody knows it'd make, where it is, it'd make a great podcast cover photo. Oh, it was. <laughs> you can't miss it. It had Wonder Animal painted on both sides of the front end. So, so some of the first, you know, wrapping official lettering along the side of vehicles was Wonder Animal on the. And it, it had big snow tread tires and it was jacked up high, so it was it was very noticeable. It's getting better and better every time you the, talk about this. The, car, the coaches so. just used to just shake their heads, you know. I mean, what else like, do you do with something like that? There's not much you could do with it. But <laughs> we made the best of it. <laughs> and I'm guessing at that time you had to be a really good or pretty good athlete, or they wouldn't have put up with all of that. Well, I I spent quite a few mornings. Uh, at four o'clock in the morning, doing the five mile trek, I can say that. But that's where the the bad guys used to have to run five miles in the morning. Anytime you messed up, you got when to you run. Messed up, yeah. I, I did a few of those. So, mm. but you know, it was different back then. I mean, you know, the guys. I mean, we drank a few beers and did some crazy things like that, but uh, nothing that really ever got out of hand to the point of, you know some of the things that go on today. Well, and back then, law enforcement acted different. I mean, you know, they weren't quite as strict about certain things. And some things they were probably more strict on. So, Well, the game wardens were, were strict, but they could never catch us. They finally did my senior year. That uh, Johnny Mac Dawkins, who was a kind of a local, you know, a hero down that way. He was a pretty tough game warden at Bluff Lake, mm-hmm. Knoxby Refuge. He used to always tell me, he'd see me uptown, he says, Sheer, I'm going to catch you one of these days, sooner or later. He says, I know what you're doing. Well, he it, said, weren't, it wasn't like you were in a nondescript car. So, I mean, <laughs> you weren't hiding very well. Well, the time, that's a really kind of a long story, but the time they really did get us was uh, down at Bluff Lake. And uh, we were sneaking in on the federal area after the season, and those ducks would come in to roost there. And uh, we would get in there in the evening and, we would pop them pretty good. Well, we got away with it about three or four times, I think about four times, and the fifth time they were waiting on us, and they got us. And they brought us down there to Buff Lake, and there must have been, I don't know, federal agents, state agents, state police, local sheriffs, everybody and their brother was down there. Set up waiting on you. Wait, yeah, they got us in there. You know, back in those days, I mean, I think they ended up, we lost hunting privileges for, three years on probation for five and they fined us like seventy five dollars. Which in nineteen sixty nine was pretty big. Had I was really lucky because I was a senior, my eligibility was done. Had had it been that uh I was still eligible, I, I might not be be at Mississippi State anymore. <laughs> you would have left over so, losing hunting privileges. Yeah, I'd have been <laughs> back to uh New Orleans. <laughs> now how did you ever how did they coax you from New Orleans up to well, the state? Well, that's a, that's a pretty I good think story. It people, that people, people ask me all the time, how, how in the world did you go to Mississippi State? Because I, I was fairly heavily recruited. I think I had opportunity to go to about 20 different schools. And believe it or not, when I was a, a recruit, they brought me up here and took me hunting, took me deer hunting two or three times, went on some big plantations up around uh, Knoxville County. And they told me, said, son, you come up here. And after football season, you'll have a place to hunt every day if you want to. And that was it. 
So 20 schools recruiting you, and they actually coaxed you into it off of a hunting trip. Exactly. I don't know if that even goes on nowadays. If if kids nowadays that are, you know, going to school or want to go to play ball, if, if that would even be in the recruitment process anymore. My but mother I, my mother said, where are you going? <laughs> I said, Mississippi State. She said, where is that? <laughs> I had an opportunity to go to Alabama, believe it or not. But, you know, back in those days, I mean, you listen to your peers a lot of times, you know, People would say, oh, man, you go up there, you'll just be another number. You'll never play, you know. So you, you, you kind of get influenced a little bit by that. And that, that played some type of a role, too. Uh, I know at the time I was got recruited, actually, Mississippi State had just won the Liberty Bowl that year. And Paul Davis was a new coach, and they looked like they were up and coming. And uh, so I thought it was a good fit at the time. Sounded Seems like it worked out overall. It worked out pretty good for me. I mean, I had a great time up there. Uh, got a degree, you know, eventually. It took me five years, but I made it. That's all right. Look, sometimes. People, people say, what was your degree? And I tell them, hunting and fishing. I got a Ph.D. <laughs> <laughs> but really, I got a degree in P.E., so it's all good. And you well, used it how much? I'm sorry? You've used that P.E. degree how much? Uh, Very little. <laughs> Very little. Go ahead, Jim. Well, I'm sorry. Well, well, Mr. Yeah, I was going to kind of move move on with it. So what was life, you know, what, what was going on? You know, you graduated up to start what state. What kind of – what kind, what started happening from there? Well, actually, um, when I finished uh, up there at Mississippi State in 69, um, I got recruited by the uh, New Orleans Saints. I didn't get drafted, but they signed me as a free agent. And actually, I went down there and stayed on the, uh, in those days, they called it the taxi squad. I was on there for two years. Today, they call it the practice squad. And then my second year on the taxi squad, I, I, I broke my elbow. And uh, they put me on injured reserve. And when I came off of that, they released me. So I went through a little dark period in my life there for a while. I really wanted to try to play ball. And my high school coach, was who who later became a scout for the Rams, said they would give me a tryout. And I thought about it, and I said, Los Angeles, I mean, I, you know, I didn't even know where that was at the time. <laughs> so I decided, you know what, I can't play football anymore. I'm going to do the, do the next best thing. I'm going to get in the hunting and fishing business. So I went down to Cochadrie in 71, set up a, you know, I'd saved a little money and uh, ended up down there and started a fishing hunting operation in 1971, been there ever since. Now, in 71, was anybody else down there at that time doing anything similar to what you were doing? There was not another charter, inland charter operation on the Louisiana coast prior to 71. There, there was probably 10 or 12 offshore guys working out of Empire, Venice, Grand Isle, and one boat out of Cocodry. But as far as inland trips, you know, taking people inland mm -hmm. for trout and redfish, there was nobody doing it at that time. And the state of Louisiana has never done a uh, good job promoting back in those days. You know, probably Louisiana was probably the best kept secret in North America at that time for fishing. It was virtually unheard of. It would probably wasn't until maybe the early to mid eighties before Louisiana really got, you know, mentioned. And when, when they started doing some outdoor shows on TV, uh, I started doing a few of those and word got out a little bit. And then, then I went around the country to a lot of these sportsman shows. 
went up into Ohio, uh, Missouri, went to Tennessee and set up a booth, you know, and started promoting, uh, you know, Louisiana fishing. And people were, were just shocked. You know, the, 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 the thought was that Louisiana was all oil and gas and polluted and there weren't any fish down there. Cause the state, like I said, had never done any kind of job promoting, you know, the, the recreational interest there. And I also helped start the, the, the first, um, tourist commission in Terrebonne Parish. We really? call them parishes in Louisiana mm-hmm. County to you. Uh, we started a tourist commission and, you know, we started spending some money and bringing people in. So since then, it's just exploded now. Yeah, if you say now, that's one of the largest attractions to Louisiana. Oh, is. Louisiana now, by a lot of accounts, is one of the number one or two destinations in the country for fishing. We went from me being the first operation in 1971 to now we have over 1,200 operations on the Louisiana coast charter guides. Now, is that inland and that's, offshore? Well, or, that's just, yeah, that's inland that and inland? offshore. You probably only have maybe on the entire Louisiana coast, maybe 25 or 30 offshore guys, but inland is a big ticket. I mean, we've got probably close to 1,200 charter guys now running inland trips. And that includes, you know, the inland and fly rod guide. That's a big thing too. Louisiana is the number one destination in the country for fly rod, you know, guys that come with fly rods and fish redfish. And see, I would have thought Florida, South Florida would have been. Well, Florida, you know, gets a lot of play uh, for like, uh, tarpon mm-hmm. and, uh, bonefish, I think. But <clears throat> Louisiana, they all want to come down and catch those bull reds on the fly rod. I've caught a many a bull red on light tackle, but I've never caught one on a fly rod. I bet that he is a. Well, the guys that do it have told me that they're, you know, and, and most of the guys that do fly rod fishing, you know, are, I mean, let me say they're really into it. a lot of these guys have the money and the, uh, to travel all over the world and do that. That's, it's a type of fraternity of the fly rod guys. Mm-hmm. And, and they tell me that catching a redfish, 25, 30 pound redfish on a fly, so there's no fish on earth that fights like it. Really? That's what they claim. I've never caught one myself on a fly rod. I've never used a fly rod, but uh, a lot of they come from everywhere to do it down there. <clears throat> you know, over the years going with different people fishing and stuff, we went with your son, Kuda, a couple of weeks ago. Gosh, it's been – Brent, what's that been? Uh, not Brent, Jeremy. That's been a month and a half ago. Yeah, something like that, because I was gone to a race whenever y'all y'all went. You know, it was it was just interesting watching us try to catch a fish to watching Kuda catch a fish, because he was able to feather one in and just drop it right in front of the fish where it's swimming. And I mean, when he took it, you know, Hayden and Luke about lost their religion sitting there, you know, thinking that was the coolest thing in the world. And it was like, guys, you know, that's when when you come down here and you do it a lot. And, and you learn how to do it right, that's what it looks like. When you do it, you know, as often as we do and do it wrong, that's not what it looks like. So, you know, it was it was a neat experience for them to be able to see somebody, you know, actually do it right and, and show them how, how it's supposed to work whenever you get one because it was one that had kind of nestled up in right there on the bank and you could see him. And we couldn't cast to him, but Kuda was able to right. just land it right there in his mouth almost and – I would have thrown 47 times and never landed it in that one spot. So you have been down there since 71. What all has changed down there from 71 to now on fishing? 
you know, primarily the pressure. I mean, it, it, because we've advertised and promoted so much here over the years that, um, you know, there's just so many people fishing. We've probably got, oh my goodness, just in Terrebonne Parish now, I, I would say we probably got 150 charter guys. Really? Right there yeah. out of Terrebonne Parish? In Terrebonne Parish. That includes all the little communities, not only Cocodry, but Montague, Pointerstown, Dulac, uh, 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 by, uh, uh, oh, what's the value over there on the far end? Uh, uh, by, uh, uh, yeah, by the large. Yeah, there's so many of these little fishing communities, you know, you lose track of them. But yeah, I mean, in camps, I mean, we probably have in Terrebonne Parish, uh, I would say probably close to 10,000 recreational camps mm-hmm. where people have come now from all over the country. Um, you know, buying lots down there and building camps, recreational camps, primarily for fishing, mostly inland. But yeah, it's just exploded. I know from now, our area. Go ahead, Jeremy. I'm sorry. Now, now was the was the fishing as good then than it is now? Even though you didn't have as much pressure, or has the fishing gotten better? You know, I know pressure doesn't make it better, but was the fishing as good then as it is now? Uh the fishing back 50 years ago was was. I mean, you can't even comprehend. It's unbelievable. I mean, I could tell stories that the average person wouldn't, couldn't even comprehend in his mind. Uh, and it, it's still the best place in North America right now on a, on a yearly basis. Um, but sure, the pressure of the fisheries of any charter guys and people with their own camps has put a, put a lot of pressure on the fisheries. And yeah, it's not as, as good as it was 50 years ago, but it's still, the best fishing place in the country. I'll give you an example: the neighboring Gulf states. Our our limit on speckled trout is still at twenty five per person. So you go out on a charter boat with a captain and and four fishermen, you can legally come in with one hundred twenty five trout. And compare that to our neighboring states, Texas. Texas is down to like five on speckled trout. Florida's down in some sections down to two limit with with a captain and a deckhand can't be included in the catch so if a captain goes out in florida with three people he's only allowed to come in with six trout in some of the east uh, uh zones in the panhandle and their slot size and their slot size is so much bigger i think yeah, they, florida's, be now, a huge fish. florida's now like 15 24 which you can't keep a trout under 15 can't keep one over 24 with a two fish limit mississippi i think is still at 10 I'm not sure uh, if that's correct, but I think it's 10 here. I think you're right. But Mississippi doesn't have a whole lot of, you know, coast and inland water, so I don't think it affects them that much down down here. But, uh, yeah, I mean, even though, um, you know, the pressure is still, like I said, it's still the most productive area in the country. And not only catching red and trout, but y'all run offshore and catch other species of fish. Well, my son does, Cuda does a lot of, he does the deep sea stuff. Yeah, he goes out there and fishes amberjack, snapper, mangroves, cobia, tuna, blackfin, yellowfin tuna. And it, it's still, even in the Gulf off the Louisiana coast, probably the most productive area in the country. Well, I know y'all been doing it for years. How much has the equipment that y'all first started with changed to what you use now between boats, motors? Well, yeah, when it comes to boats and all the electronics is just, I mean, it's, it's like cell phones. I mean, every year, I mean, six months, it's, they come out with new stuff, you know, 
Um, so yeah, equipment is, is far advanced. Everything is. Everything's motors. I mean, boats. I mean, you know, just everything is just leapfrogged ahead. I thought you had a question there. But now, I know over the years, you've got some good stories that have come out of y'all fishing down there. I know just from us hunting together over the years, there's all, all types of good stories we can get into. But do you have any stories that just stand out over the years? You know, special people you've been able to take fishing or you know, just something that you, you know, happened that has struck a chord and, and made a memory all these years? I've I've got a ton of stories, and I could probably give you one here. Some people here in Mississippi might get a little upset with me if I say this. Maybe there might be some repercussions, but uh, if you know anything about football, you ever heard of a guy named Archie Manning? Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of um, Peyton Manning? We have. How about Eli mm -hmm. Manning? <laughs> I heard of all of them. Well, I've taken all of them fishing. <laughs> and. I think it took me about an hour and a half to teach uh, Peyton how to flip a bale on a spinning reel. And I think my claim to fame was he was, he had just signed with the University of Tennessee. He was a senior that year in high school. Okay. He had just signed. And I think I made some kind of statement quote after that. He'll never make it in SEC. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. I'm, just a, I'm just a poor fisherman. <laughs> So that give you a little insight what, on my. What kind of comment did he did he hear you make that? No, comment? He, I okay. don't think he did. I hope he I hope he's never heard that. <laughs> I'm wondering if that might not have been something that he used to you know kind of push him forward through some times. You know, Mister Stu said I wasn't going to make it, so I'm going to prove him wrong. And uh, another little story on that same trip. Actually, the, the trip when I took the three of them, uh, I had done a, a local show down in uh, Homa. We got a local TV station down there, and they had an outdoor show, and Martin Foster's owner, and he's always calling me all the time. He said, man, when you take somebody important out, call me, call me, I want to interview him. Well, somehow they got word. I didn't tell him, but they got word that Archie and Peyton and Eli were coming down there to fish, so he ended up showing up down there and did a little interview. In 1968, Archie was the quarterback at Ole Miss. He was a sophomore when I was a senior. And we played him in Oxford. And the score was 17 to 10 with 39 seconds to go. And Archie drove them all the way down and they scored with no time left. And tied it up. And tied it. And I asked Archie on that, on that interview down there, I said, Archie, back in 68, yeah, yeah. I said, why didn't you guys go for the win instead of kicking the extra point to tie us and end the game. He said, well, he said, I'll tell you what. He said, we knew you were on the right side, outside. And he says, that's the way I would have normally gone. And he says, we just couldn't take a chance. <laughs> so we went for the tie. And I said, yeah, you're full of you know what. <laughs> but that's the kind of guy he was. You know, he's such a gentleman. He's such a great guy. Well, you must have made some type of impression that he remembered it after all that time that you were on the right side. Well, I th you know, it, it, it's just nice that he, you know, was able to come up with that kind of, you know, statement. But, uh, yeah, he's a great guy. And I, I would go see him every year. You know, they have a big quarterback, quarterback camp down there in Thibodeau every year where they come, all quarterbacks come from all over the country. Mm -hmm. And that's Archie. It's called Archie's, you know, quarterback camp. And I'd go over there every year and, see him and talk to him and 
he's he's a he's a really a gentleman. Uh, he was a great player at Ole Miss, and you know, of course, that was a big rivalry with us. And uh, people asked me about you know Mississippi State when I played, and and they asked me if I ever go back up to the games. And the fall is always a big time for us in the fishing hunt business down there. So I never had a chance to really go back to one of the games. And somebody asked me, said you've never been? I said the last game I saw, I played in it. Oh, wow. 1968. The last one that you saw in person. That's right. The last one I saw, I played in it. So, but great, great experience. And Archie and the boys are great, you know. Well, and like you say, during that time of the year, that's one of y'all's busiest time of the year. The fall, actually, October, November is two of our busiest months. You know, a lot of people come from all over. They like to fish because the trout and the reds move inland Mm -hmm. up into the interior marshes and lakes and you know, sometimes you don't have to run, run more than five minutes. So it's a different set of people that come in the fall. So we were extremely busy during that time. And I don't really get a chance to – I always keep saying, you know, they call me. Brantz even mentioned it. And Dee's mentioned to me, said, man, you need to come up here. You need to come up here. Now, Brent said earlier you roomed with D.D. I roomed with him a couple of years up there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you said he was a pretty quiet guy? <laughs> he he was fairly quiet, you know, Um you know, I, I was always in, uh, give you an example, Dee. I was always in a weight room all the time, you know, trying to better myself, you know, doing, and Dee never touched a weight. And sometimes after football season, he'd come over there on a Friday afternoon and I'd be in a weight room, man, just doing everything I could to lift weights. And Dee Dee'd come over there and he'd have a beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And he says, man, he said, that ain't going to help you. We're going to Columbus to chase women. Come on. <laughs> and he was right. He was, I tell you what, the guy, the guy was unbelievable. I mean, he, and I, and I can say this about him. He was weak. I don't think he could bench press 200 pounds and, uh, he wasn't extremely fast, but he was so quick with his hands and feet. You couldn't block him. They used to make uh, promo films with him back in those days, you know, was hitting people. He, he, his timing was so perfect. A lot of times he'd hit guys and, and their helmets would fly off. Uh, he was just a, he's one of these guys that comes along maybe every 20 years. He was, he was a football player. When he, when that, he put that chin strap on, it was game on. You know, it used to frustrate me all the time because, you know, I was always in the weight room doing everything I could and he never did any of that. And he, he was just a ball player. Just gifted. He just, yeah, he just had just it naturally had it and could go with it and. That's right. He got he got drafted in the sixth round, I think, by the Cowboys. And when he signed with the Cowboys, I think he got a and that was nineteen sixty eight. He got a sixty five hundred dollars seventy five hundred dollar bonus. And he took us all out to Lend Lose. That was back in those days, October Hawk County was dry. So you had to drive to the next county, which was Lowndes County, to to drink a beer. And right when you crossed over from October Hall to Lowndes, it was called the Crossroads, and they had like three joints there. They had Father E's, Eccles, they had the Crossroads, and they had Lenlu's, all three beer joints. And he took us all up to Lenlu's that day and and just bought steaks and pitchers of beer for everybody that walked in there. And you could you could buy a big old sirloin steak in those days for like $2.25. That's so big it used to hang over the sides of the plate, you know. And we drank. We drank pitchers of beer and ate steaks and, I mean, that's the most money we'd ever seen, you mm-hmm. know, $7,500 in 1968. 
And I think Didi's first year salary, he made 18 five, 1965. Wow. Which the minimum in the NFL, what, is half a million now? Oh, probably. Yeah. The, the taxi, I think they changed it. Yeah, the taxi squad guys in my day, in other words, today they call them practice squad. I don't think there's a player on the Saints making less than half a million. I even would say that's the, a even on a practice now. squad. I, yeah. I think that's a league minimum is a yeah. half a million. So Didi played 14 years with the Cowboys. He's got five Super Bowl rings, and I think when he retired, he was only making about 125,000. Mm. Mm. When I when I signed as a free agent with the Saints in '69, my first year salary was uh, 10.5. Then you were living larger than Oh, George. I had an off-season job making about 5,000, working for a friend of mine down there. That had a private detective agency so i was making about 16 grand in 1969 and starting teachers and coaches in louisiana and mississippi in 1969 started at about 4800 and that my degree was in physical air 4869 yeah that's what the starting pay was about that time so i i mean i i thought i was a millionaire yeah, <laughs> yeah. My, You're making my, three. Oh, my four wife times. at the time was making about the same. So we we were bringing in about thirty five thousand a year in nineteen sixty nine. We were living, we were living high. I was driving a Cadillac car, and I was living in the finest apartment in New Orleans at the time. I mean, we were we were uptown, man. Well, coming <laughs> from the car you told us you had earlier, a, a Cadillac was dang sure a, a step up. In oh the- man, I was driving those big black <laughs> Fleetwood Broms. You remember those? I do remember those cars. Oh, man. Look. That was long before my time. I don't know what you're talking about. I was wearing gold on every finger. And they the, be. That's yeah. a big car. Oh, like, man, you could sleep in the back yeah, seat. It's like a tank. You, you could run into whatever yeah. you wanted to. That's right. Keep on moving. Well, look, yeah. you, you told us a story right before we got on here uh, about some turkeys. I want to hear that story again. Well, we'll, we'll tell. I think the statute of limitations has run out on that, so I might be safe saying it. We should be good. So you got to picture this, okay? Football season's over, right? So we're driving to Columbus, the the place of note in those days, in in uh, 1968, even a few years before that, was a place in Columbus called the Southern Air Club, and and it had a band in there called uh, Big Ben and the Watch Band, okay? And that's where every uh Buddy went back in those days, Southern Air Club. I mean, that was the place. If you wanted to be seen, and that was it, okay? So we, we go to Southern Air Club that night, and we we had a few beers, maybe a few too many. So we we driving back from Columbus to Starkville, and, and between Starkville and a little community called West Point, there was a turkey farm called Portera's Turkey Farm. I hope there's no Portera's listening. <laughs> So we decided we decided we're going we're going to get some turkeys, okay? So we pull up there and um it was about five of us in the vehicle and we had one serious problem. They had an electric fence around the around the perimeter of that turkey farm. But we had one of the guys on the boat, I mean on the on the uh, vehicle named Ray Dito. Ray's passed on. He was from it was a big tackle out of Gulfport, Mississippi. And he was, he was pretty, pretty drunk. He was pretty inebriated. So we decided we're just going to use him and short the fence out with him. But he was, <laughs> he was already too far gone. So we, <laughs> we, we jammed him up against the fence and he shorted it out. <laughs> what a friend. So, so <laughs> that, 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 that says friend all over there. Yeah, I mean, what a buddy. <laughs> so he's all laid out. We didn't know if he was dead or what, but so we had a, 
another buddy of mine, old Phil Thomas, old red-haired Phil Thomas. I won't even tell you what his nickname was. It wouldn't be appropriate, but uh, he and I got in the turkey house there. And those turkeys at night, you know, they're roosting. They, they won't even move. Big white ones, big gigantic white butterbone. We'd just grab them. We'd swing their neck and throw them over the fence. And I think we got 28. I think it was, <laughs> that was a count. We got 28 of them that night, and we had the whole trunk full of white turkeys. 28 butterballs, probably 20, 20 oh, to 25 yeah. pound and turkeys. Phil, Phil was married at the time, and he lived off the campus. So he rented a, a food locker, and we spent a couple of days, you know, picking those birds, and he rented a big food locker. And his wife at the time, she every week we had a big turkey dinner. So that was <laughs> – that was that was just one of the minor stories that I can share here with you on the show. Well, look, most of the others I can't share. <laughs> well, look, I know we're probably getting short on time here, but there's one story in particular that since I met you through our friends at Longleaf, uh, the Anderson family has been so gracious to us. And one of the first stories I ever heard about Stu uh, was a story about him wearing a big ape costume and dragging a dead deer across the road at night when everybody left. Sasquatch. Yeah. Well, Sasquatch. Big Sasquatch. Fun. Well, I'll, Sasquatch, yeah. I'll, I'll run that and buy you real quick. So we decided uh, Fred, uh, Fred's brother, David, David and I came up with this idea. So I went down in the French Quarter in New Orleans, one of those masquerade places, you know, for Mardi Gras, and had him make me a Bigfoot suit. I think at the time, I mean, this is back in the early 80s, I think it cost me about $250 to have this suit made. And when I tell you realistic, this thing was so realistic looking. I mean, at 30 yards, I mean, it was a real deal. Baby. <laughs> so we decided. And it's 6'2", 200 plus pounds. And, and, and I watched It's a those, big gorilla coming across. That's right. And I watched those shows on TV, you know, with the Bigfoot back then, you know, the Bonneville Snowman, Sasquatch, whatever you want to call it. So, you know how they, they kind of loped, you know. Well, at Longleaf, when you leave the camp, you, you drive, you're driving south and, you, and it, and it comes to a, what we call a 90 degree turn where, I mean, it's absolutely like an L. I mean, you got to slow down to 10 miles an hour to make the turn. So the deal was David took me down on the straightaway there right before the 90 degree and I got up in the pine trees there. And when every evening, when we when we go to the skinning shed, we clean the deer, and when all the deer is clean and everything's cleaned up, they wash it down and uh, haul the guts off. So it's the same routine and route every day. So we had it planned where when they would be coming down the road, they had to slow down to that ninety degree turn. Well, I I loped out into the gravel road right there, about you know sixty seventy yards in front of them, stopped, looked at them, and then loped on into the woods. Look, <laughs> the, the the TV people from Baton Rouge, the radio people from Baton Rouge, uh, uh, paper people were calling Fred day and night. They wanted to come to the place and interview. Word had traveled through the communities, you know, through the help communities. Mm -hmm. And Bigfoot was seen on Longley. <laughs> oh, it was a mess. And, and Fred at the time, you know, he didn't know for sure. But he called me in his office. He said, look, he says, you and that Bigfoot suit. <laughs> he says, I can't get people to come to work. He said, I mean, you've got this whole place in a mess. I said, Fred, it wasn't me. I said, I don't know a thing about it. And he said, hey, you look at me in the eye. He said, are you telling me the truth? I said, Fred, I don't know a thing about it. Don't know anything about it. So that went on for a long time. And 
Every now and then, Fred would get me aside and say, tell me about that Bigfoot suit. I said, Fred, I don't know a thing about it. <laughs> I don't know what they saw, but it wasn't me. You about messed up and got shot down there one night, didn't almost, you? Almost, <laughs> almost. I'll tell you what. So one I, of the guys that worked down there had cleared the gun or cleared the oh, they, with they, the gun. They, they, they wouldn't leave without guns and everything. So, <laughs> I mean, when I would cross that road, I took off. I mean, look, everything I had in me, I'd sprint about 200 yards through those pine trees. So I was pretty safe. But after a while, it got a little, little nervous. So we, we gave that up. Well, to have more fun with this story, Mr. Daryl Bateman told me one time that you unscrewed the light bulb in his truck. And was sitting in the passenger seat on him when he got in from a hunt one evening. <laughs> Do you remember? Oh yeah, look. <laughs> he flipped upside down and broke, his, <laughs> broke the uh, butt of his gun, and 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 Fred again. Fred said he told me he says that's the end of it. He said no more. And I said Fred, I don't damn thing about it. <laughs> well, to, to the to the last week of Fred's life. I mean, and Fred and I were very close. He asked me about that Bigfoot suit, and and he went to his went to his grave not knowing. So you never did own up I to never, it. Never, never honored up to it. Well, how did all of us know that it was you? And I guess just nobody ever told him. Uh, nobody ever said anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, I remember Mister Darrell telling me we were at the camp one day, and he got telling me about it, and he, I can't explain it the way he did, just because right. we're on 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 the air, but. Yeah, he had some some good choice words for you that night because he said he he got over and he said he opened his door and he noticed that the light didn't come on like it normally did. And when he sat down, there's this 200-something-pound gorilla sitting in the seat next to him. That's right. And I don't remember if he said you made a noise or if he patted you or what, but some some movement gave you away. And I knew he he almost hurt himself trying to vacate the vehicle. And the conclusion of that story was, this is the part that really gets confusing. It must have been about in the middle of July of that next year. And David calls me down in Cocodry. One of the girls, I was taking a nap or something in the afternoon, just come off a fishing trip. One of the girls came back and woke me up and said, there's a man on the phone says he needs to talk to you right away. I said, okay. So I went up in the front there at the restaurant. It was David. He said, he said, what are you doing coming up here with that Bigfoot suit in the middle of the summer? I said, David, I haven't been up there since the deer season in January. He said, oh, man, don't give me any of that. He said, I know you've been up here. He said, you got the help scared to death. They won't come to work. One of the girls that was, you know, that worked up there at Longleaf at, at the camp claimed that the Bigfoot ran across the yard when they were going back to the to the log house and now they wouldn't come to work and David's all upset. And he said, man, you got to, you, you can't do that anymore. He said, enough is enough. He said, we done run all the help off and said, you got to get that suit up. I said, David, I don't know what they saw, but I'm down here fishing. It wasn't me. So I don't know whatever happened, what the deal was. <laughs> I don't think anybody ever knew. So there was, but I think there was couple, something else got spotted. Something else was going on up there. After a couple of weeks, the girls came back and cleared up. And that's been, that's been what? 25, 30 years now. Well, the, I guess now officially the word is out. So everybody <laughs> well, will know who was, who was actually up the to Bigfoot, yeah. <laughs> the Bigfoot name it County. So uh, thank goodness the TV shows weren't able to catch you but on. You, 
You had to know Fred, though. I mean, Fred was kind of a guy. He didn't want to be bothered with a lot of stuff with the newspapers and the TV people and the radio people calling Fred and wanting to come up in and interview and Bigfoot. And he was just he was just going crazy. <laughs> and, you know, if you did it today, there's no telling how many videos and pictures of you would be. Oh, I mean, you know, no t- they'd I'm, have 84 game cameras set out. Well, I mean, there's some have pushed me to maybe try doing that again, but I don't know if I could move very quick enough to get <laughs> off that road. I'd be afraid to do it. Some of these guys today, I mean, they get out of vehicles pretty quick. They get be, shot this day and time. Ooh, what? <laughs> well, it would be a different way to go. Uh, I mean, um, if you ever decide you want to go in a spectacular fashion, that would be a, uh, that would definitely it, be a different way. I of think I'll pass it. on that. Too. <laughs> well, so you told that story a little different than the version I heard that Mr. David told me. And he told me that you, y'all had killed a yearling deer that afternoon, one afternoon. And you were, you were dragging that deer by the, by well, the leg across the road. Well, I, I, I dragged the deer for maybe about, uh, maybe 10. That is true. I did, I drug it for about 10 feet and then I left it and ran like hell through the woods. Cause I mean, at that time, I didn't know, you know, they all had weapons. Right. But they couldn't get out fast enough. And I got, and back then I was a little more nimble. So I was able to get down through those pine trees pretty quick. Now, I, I was a little nervous about it. I'll be honest with you. But, uh, oh, it was, it was a story, man. <laughs> That's a good one too. Yeah. Dude, uh, as we're wrapping up here, you know, and would love to have you back on another time, just whenever you're up in the area and you, you feel like telling some more good stories. But, you know, everybody that's listening to this, if they want to come down and fish it with you, cause I know anytime anybody fishes with you, they get to hear same kind of stuff. And the more stories you have when things are a little tough and the fishing's a little slow, everybody <laughs> wants to hear stories, you know, tell us some football <laughs> stories, tell us fishing stories, tell us, you know, so yeah, it, it plays a big role and it's, it's well, good. What's the easiest way for everybody to get up with you? If anybody wants to charter a trip with you? Well, the easiest way, I mean, just pick up the phone and call me. I mean, uh, my cell phone number is, um, a 985-855-1846 or you can go online and, uh, if you're computer savvy and you go look up my website and you can pull up my name or look up Cocodry Inside Charters and, you know, it gives you a lot of information and, you know, people can go there. So they can, they can go on there. They can either find the phone sure. number or can they book a hunt online? Well, they can book a fishing trip. I'm oh, out I mean, of, a, yeah, I'm out of the hunting business trip. now, but they could, yeah, they can book, uh, you know, the easiest way though. And I, I'm old school. You know, people send me uh, long text messages or they'll send me emails that are a mile long with a hundred questions. Uh, and like I said, I'm from the old school. Just pick up the phone and call me, mm-hmm. and I'll be glad to tell you anything you want to know. And uh, if you don't get me right away, I'll definitely return your call and uh, talk to you about anything. That sounds good. Yeah, Mr. Stu, Brent, look, we enjoyed it. Thank you all for, uh, for being with us today. And everybody, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Outdoor Country Talk. God bless. God bless. Well, ain't nothing like a southern Lord, to make you feel alright, I got the windows down, I got the radio on, I got the music crank way up loud.